This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Millie Creighton, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia. Her most recent publication, published in Volume 29 of Contemporary Japan, is A Treehouse in Tokyo, Reflections on Nikkei, Citizenship, Belonging, Architecture, and Art on the 75th Anniversary of Japanese-American and Japanese-Canadian Internment. Dr. Creighton, thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me, Dr. Uh, in a lot of your research, I noticed as I was looking over the list of publications, you talk a lot about travel and mm-hmm. tourism. So in the tourist industry in Japan, how does a Meiji restoration come up? Well, as you point out, I mean, a lot of my work has been on tourism. It's one of, it is a big, travel and tourism is a kind of a big subfield within anthropology, which is the discipline from which I approach Japan. And I actually was doing research on Edo-era tourism, not tourism during the Edo era, 1603 to 1868, which some people do, but modern contemporary Japanese tourism that people do now or recently to Edo era sites or locations. And then in the process began also exploring the transition from Edo era to Meiji era, the opening up to the West and the transformation, the restoration of the emperor as a role. And, and then further things that represent the Meiji era and tourism to that. Now, perhaps I could say off the bat, and one of the things I noted in my Edo era research, um, I think there's a bit of a kind of touristic irony here because it is a big tourist campaign and history tourism became very big. And there was the construction of something called the Rekshi Kaido in Japan, the history trail or the history tourism. So people are going to these places to reconnect with their sense of Japanese identity from the Edo era or the Meiji era. Now, in theory, I don't think you have to go anywhere because in actuality, all of Japan existed during those years. So if you want to reconnect with a place that was existing in the Meiji era, you could just stay where you are. But that doesn't make a very good promotional campaign for tourism. So so I'm, I'm trying to think of ways or look at ways that Meiji in, in other eras, but the Meiji era is constantly being remade in contemporary times or whatever times people are in and being used for the purposes of those people in a particular time, not just how it was during the Meiji era itself. And that all fits in with concepts of the reinvention or the invention of history and the reinvention of tradition, that we are constantly revising our ideas of the past and then also using the past in ways that make sense to us in whatever era that we're in. When I was in Japan, one of the most fun places I ever went Outside of Nikko, there is a place called Nikko Edo Mura, which completely reconstructs this this Edo village. Mm-hmm. And so, you can go see the the ninja show. You can go see the samurai show. And then outside of Nagoya, there's also the Meiji Mura. Right. And so this idea of we can, we really can reconstruct. Right. Past. And and you also hit on you know there's a fairly ongoing and it was fairly you know Japan is a land of theme parks of all kind and the Edo village area and the Meiji Muda or Meiji village um, are actually pretty long standing theme parks in Japan. Meiji Muda, which as as you say is not far from Nagoya, uh, I believe opened in in 1965, you know, so it's had like a 50-year history. But more recently, past the building of the Rekshi Kaido and with new attempts to recapture identity through through history, 
<clears throat> forays and a more maybe recent television or drama broadcast has, you know, if, if anything, furthered that interest and people's travel to various places. The other thing about doing it that way, I think for Japanese for tourism, still, um, you know, you can't, it's not really that good just to have fun for the sake of fun, having fun in Japan. It's, you know, it's, you, you have to prove that you're doing something meaningful and that it's work-oriented, but people, people work at what we call hobbies, and I think it's, the term hobby has been slighted in English. It's seen as not important, and it doesn't really translate to the Japanese word shumi, which is thought of as very important, and it's a form of self-knowledge and education, and so if you are involved in history and you pursue it avidly and thoughtfully and studiously, it's very different. And, you know, so people who are history, Edo history, uh, knowledgeable people or Meiji history, knowledgeable people, and then travel and tourism is part of your self-education. It's not just about having fun. Of course, sometimes it is just about having fun, but you need a guise to put it in. So if you can cloak it in in visiting Meiji-related sites, if that's what you uh, have, then um, then it works well. As someone who studies architecture, I mean, I, I'm certainly pleased that you know, they, at Meiji Muro, you can go see Frank Lloyd Wright's Imperial Hotel and everything. So there, on the one hand, it, it's nice to see preservation mm -hmm. of old buildings. But then as a historian, it kind of brings up these questions of, is this an accurate portrayal of the history? What does this do about? What is this doing to history? What is the meaning of reconstructing this past? Well, the Meiji Muda specifically, the Meiji village, was done fairly early, mm -hmm. yeah, as you point, as we discussed in 1965. And it's actually kind of a hodgepodge. I mean, they brought in a bunch of stuff, and they didn't want to just destroy it, and right. so it's all stuck together. And then there's a bit of the Taisho era thrown in and a bit of the Showa era. In other cases, just in terms of Japanese theme parks, they're very exact. I mean... If you go, for example, to Canadian World in Japan, which is not really about Canada, it's about Anne of Green Gables and Prince Edward Island, but they sent people over to map every inch of the Anne of Green Gables location and, you know, shipped back carpenters and, and artisans and they rebuilt it all, you know, to scale exactly. And that's happened with other foreign theme parks. So so there's there's becoming this emphasis or has been over the years on getting all of these things kind of precisely done. Have you heard about the Dutch one outside of Nagasaki? Yes, indeed. Hustenbutz theme park. Yeah. What, what do you make of all of these foreign theme, theme parks? Well, uh, it's, it's perhaps thought for another podcast, but, um, you know, it's a way that Japanese who don't travel can actually bring all of these areas of the world in and I think it, you know, as an anthropologist who works in tourism, I think it's a very interesting question about what in the end is domestic tourism and what is international tourism. And having mentioned Anne of Green Gables, you know, I mean, on one hand, Anne of Green Gables tourism is international tourism, Japanese going to Canada, even if they're going to Canadian world in Japan. On the other hand, in some sense, it's domestic tourism, even if they're coming to Canada, because Anne of Green Gables has been such a fundamental part of Japanese life since the first translation in 1952. So so I think with the others as well, you know, um, really, it's, you know, that division between domestic and international tourism kind of becomes questioned at the borders there. You mentioned b before TV shows and mm -hmm. historical dramas and, 
and how this plays into tourism. Can you explain a bit of Okay, well, I'd, specifically in regards to the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji era, again, the Meiji Restoration being that period of, in the transition from the Edo era to the Meiji era, and if we look at the heroes often portrayed of, of that time period, so one of them who's quite significant, coming from Kochi Prefecture in uh, Shikoku, and often they are from not necessarily the main Honshu Island, um, Sakamoto Roma, um, who is now a very heroic figure, and he's one of, I believe it's four, they have bronze, big bronze statues mm -hmm. when you get to the station in Kochi Prefecture, um, all male, of course, that are the heroes of the area. Um, and he was very prominent as part of this, this time and this transition, and he's quite a hero of the region and also has been figured in at least two of television drama series, one done quite some time ago, I think about 45 years ago, and one that aired in 2010. And, you know, he is and his right. best friend are assassinated right. together. But that is exactly part of why he is heroic, perhaps, and, and also his loyalty to to the side that he was on, but he doesn't survive it. He is part of, he is assassinated with his best friend. But what's very intriguing is the 2010 version of that aired, these are serial dramas that aired. In that version of the drama, it's really presented as a romance. It's a love story. And what is really featured is the love story between Sakamoto uh, Roma and his wife Ro, Ro, or as he calls her, Odo, uh, rather than the earlier one, which is more directed, I think, at boys and male youth mm -hmm. and is emphasizing bravado and samurai things and fighting and wars. Well, this one has that as well, but the love story prevails. Well, by 2010, who's going to be involved in tourism Japan? It might more likely be single women, even if they don't make much money, that still have a chance to travel before they get married or have to be settled, or a family outing in which the wife is deciding where to go, right? So it's very pertinent for the commercial industries, in some sense, to kind of shift their orientation to include both genders, or both males and females, and not just, you know, this samurai bravado. But he's one very important character and very important regionally and very embraced by that prefecture. Another is Saigo Takamori from uh, Kyushu, Kagoshima area. Now, again, it's a very interesting kind of situation because he really is the hero of the area. Still now, yeah. if you, you know, tourism to Kagoshima, you know, Saigo is the person. And, you know, he was a charismatic person and even looked, I think, rather distinctive and different than typical Japanese of his day. But also Kagoshima itself. So Kagoshima has its area charismatic right. hero, right. as Kochi does. And, but Kagoshima positions itself as the birthplace of the Meiji Restoration. And it has that slogan. And you can go as a tourist to the Meiji Ishin Furusato-kan. Mm -hmm. So the Meiji Restoration, Furusato, Furusato, mm. is usually your home place mm -hmm. or somebody's birthplace. So it's yeah. the birthplace of the Meiji Restoration. It's like a big museum. And, you know, they will tell you that if mm -hmm. you don't know that this is, in their mind, the birthplace. And they have a very well-done tourist... Um, venue. You can buy, a person can buy their ticket for the loop line bus and it allows you to go throughout the day in this, you know, path that goes to all of those pivotal sites mm -hmm. that are related to to that rebellion and to what then becomes the beginning of 
supposedly the Meiji era with the Meiji Restoration. So so people want to go to Kagoshima, there's something you can do. You can take the loop line and go on the bus. And then the museum, it has a lot, both the history of that era in terms of the political rebellion and Meiji coming in, but also other things happening then throughout the Meiji era. And one of the things very interesting and important and what was happening in Japan, I think, in the Meiji era is photography is becoming more widespread. I mean, photography, it's, you know, it's, it's still in its early stages in the 1860s and then on, but it's becoming more widespread. And so a lot of the photography exhibits from the era and it is, are also very interesting historically. Now, uh, two other cases to deal again with sort of pivotal heroes, Inaosuke from Hikone, who does not live really much longer through the restoration, he gets killed. Yes, so, um, but he's a very big hero from Hikone. Mm -hmm. And I find contrasting his story and that of Hikone with Hage, Hagi personally very fascinating because Hagi, I feel, is known in Japan as a castle town. And in fact, people will say that, the castle town of Hagi. Or if you bring up Hagi, people will say the castle town Hagi. Um, I have an article from a Japanese reporter mentioning Hagi, says the castle town Hagi. Hagi does not have a castle, of course, and has not had a castle since the Meiji Restoration Mm -hmm. time frame, uh, because the clan leader at the time, who lived in the castle with his family, kind of sided with you know, the side that he knew would prevail and therefore sort of, according to some stories, himself destroyed the castle or at least allowed the castle to be destroyed. So the castle is gone, but Hagi is the castle town. And you can see where it used to be. So if you are interested in going to Hagi to see where the castle used to be, there's other reasons to go to Hagi. It has, uh, you know, massive remaining uh, beer building structures from the Edo era and early Meiji era, so it's very interesting. So it's the castle town of Hagi. Now, contrasting that, Hikone, which has a castle and is one of the only 12 castle places in Japan that actually has the remaining structure of the castle. There are many castles in Japan, but they've been burnt down or rebuilt or this or that. Hikone's had work done, too, (laughs) the last 150 years, but it still has the basic remaining structure, one of 12 castles. I've never heard anyone refer to Hikone as a castle town, Mm -hmm. despite the presence of its castle. So I find it interesting because I think for the English speaker or the foreigner, we expect a castle town to have a castle. And actually, when I've I've run across writings from foreigners, meaning non-Japanese, about Hagi, they refer to it as the former castle town, but Japanese just call it the castle town. Um, So what's being referenced by castle town is not the presence or absence of a castle in the designation castle town. It's the expectation of what the area and the that is under the governance is like. And Hagi is the quintessential castle town in that sense, without a castle. Whereas Hikone has a castle, but it's not what people conceptualize in its administrative functions as a castle town. Now Inosuke was a big hero, and I think he's greatly admired for that. He also was short-lived. I mean he's assassinated, but the castle survived, perhaps partly related to that. Whereas the castle in Hagi does not re- survive, and that person sort of surrenders, 
but he lived quite a long time. I mean, relatively. So, so you know, we can take our preference. Do you want to be remembered as a hero, or do you want to live long? I'm not sure. But there are some interesting, I think, um, things happening there. Supposedly, the Meiji Emperor went to Hikoni and liked the castle, and therefore decided not to have it destroyed, as they were trying to destroy castles that you know were emblematic of the previous era. So all of those things are happening in terms of the heroes of the Restoration and, and how tourism, and particularly through dramas and TVs and other things, promotes tourism to the Meiji Restoration er areas. Kobe, I think, is interestingly important to, to mention. Kobe being often Japanese from when I first started to go to Japan, they would think of Kobe as a very international place. Well, I was living in Tokyo. I mean, you know, Tokyo is pretty international. I don't know why people keep telling me, oh, go to Kobe. It's very international. Well, it has that feeling to Japanese because it was officially designated as such mm -hmm. and actually by the Meiji Emperor in 1868. Meiji Emperor declares Kobe is going to be the international city that opens to the rest of the world and partly because it's a port city, mm -hmm. Maybe partly because it's in Kobe and not in Tokyo. We'll keep them down there. I don't know. But anyway, the Meiji Emperor designates Kobe as Japan's foremost international city, and it retains that, that aura or that identity. And in tourism now, you can do things in Kobe, like eat at all kinds of non-Japanese restaurants, which you can do anywhere else in Japan. But in Kobe, it has this feeling of being, because since Meiji, it's been this international city. But... You know, some of the romantic river cruises and things will emphasize in their promotions that you can, you know, dine and float along the river, just like the foreigners did in the early Meiji era as they came and, and these kinds of things. get into a different kind of tourist venture related to Meiji. Um, well, you mentioned Meiji Mura, and they have maybe some of this at Meiji Mura, but there are a lot of sites that represent um, Meiji industrialization and Meiji modernization that have been transformed into tourist sites, and they've become very prominent tourist sites. One of these, which again is kind of an overlap, is something called Minetopia in Uhemi Prefecture, which is, again is in Shikoku. This is a mining area. It was actually an operative mining area beginning in the Edo era, but then throughout the Meiji era, and I think a bit beyond in the Taisho uh, and Showa. So it has been transformed, it's closed down, but it's been transformed into a theme park. So people go there on vacations. At one point it was one of the highest in fairly recent years, you know, one of the best places to go on your vacation areas being promoted uh, as, as an attraction. So I've been there and it's very interesting. You can see where the, you know, the types of dwellings people had. They usually aren't there, but you can tell from the remains, you know, how big each air unit was and families were living there and then the types, the ways people lived generally, you know, usually probably it was a man working in the mines. Women did at times work in mines during the Meiji era, but in this case, Families would be there, so you'd have a family unit living in each of these dwellings, and the man's probably working, and they had fairly probably a fair number of kids. And 
and it's fun to go there and it's fun to see how people lived and you get to do fun things that represent the things that they did and one can drift into the feeling that it was all very fun to be there which of course I'm it was not and it plays into a lot of nostalgia contemporary nostalgia and I myself you know you you kind of romanticize the life and the being a part of it and it made me think about that because I'm sure there was nothing that wrong. It was pretty harsh and it was pretty difficult and the pay was pretty bad and you had to struggle uh, a lot and, and these families can barely probably survive and feed their kids and they're probably going farther in debt to the companies and this and that. But, you know, so what is all the nostalgia in modern Japan about? Um, and a lot of nostalgia for the immediate post-World War period, which, again, was dramatically difficult. And people are now saying, but look, people, people had a spirit then that we don't have. And perhaps, you know, what people feel was there was, you know, the human spirit that has to rise precisely because the circumstances and conditions are so bad. And, and that's what people are missing or shared difficulties. Everything was so maybe dramatically difficult if you're living in these mining camps or, you know, in the early post-war, that people had to be more joined together in their sense of collective community, and maybe that is, is missed uh, now more than really I think we want to relive what it was like to be a, a, a mining family in one of those difficult mines back in, in the Meiji era. Similar to that, as you may know, in 2015, there are 23 sites of Japan's Meiji modernization and industrialization that were entered into the UNESCO heritage sites. So many of those, well all of them in some sense, have now become tourist venues, right. some of them much more so than others. And some of them already were well known and people would go there and the rest of course. And you know this was a big thing for Japan or as it is for a country when something gets on a UNESCO site. And some of them in particular, I think Gunkanjima, which is near Nagasaki, officially it's Hashima, but people always refer to it as Gunkanjima, which means battleship island. Mm -hmm. And it was a coal mining area as well. And that coal mine began in the Meiji era and actually was operative until 1974. And after it shut down, the island is basically uninhabited. So. Tourism to these areas is a way also that Japan brings people back or people going back to these, they were once populated families, communities are there because of these means of making a living and then become abandoned or semi-abandoned. So Gunjinjima and these other 22 sites now you, I think, are likely aware. There also were debates with that and a lot of it criticism from countries like Korea that did not like the idea of these sites making the UNESCO heritage list because they also helped Jap enable Japan to develop its military apparatus or and, weaponry. And there were Korean laborers who were, right, who were who important. Being, to you know, <laughs> supposed there and being exploited. Um, and that was all discussed in uh, among the committees and what they should do with that. I think the decision was that you know, there are many places in the world where we have to look at these kinds of shifts and advantages and that they also result in things that can later be put to negative purposes like Japan's later um, military invasions. But one of the things that seems to me is not addressed as much, these many of these sites were also very abusive and exploitative and oppressive for Japanese. 
You know, it would not have been, you know, now it's, it's, isn't this wonderful? We have sites, I don't mean only that particular sites, but these other sites of Meiji modernization. It's very positive because they do propel Japan into mm -hmm. being the first non-Western country to develop as much as the West and modernize. But, you know, it's a lot of it is done on the basis of exploiting certain groups of people and their labor. You know, average Japanese, those from rural areas, women in many cases. Um, you know, if we look at, for example, Patisumi's work on the thread mills of Meiji Japan, those factories, which are very important in pr promoting that industrial, while they're feeding on the labor of rural, I'm not sure whether they say girls or women, they are pretty young, you know, like 15, yeah, 15 or up, girls, yeah. and conditions are not good, labor is intense, tuberculosis rates are very high, and many of those girls, women, die as a result of TB. So, you know, there is a, there's an oppressive element to many of, of these historic things as well, that it's, it's, you know, oppressive sometimes to outside laborers, oppressive often to certain categories of Japanese laborers, particularly those that are not from well-off backgrounds or at that time often from rural backgrounds and other things of that nature. You had mentioned before, uh, just offhand, that the museum in Kagoshima is called the Meiji Ishin Furusatokan. Yes. And so it, it, it kind of struck... It has the term Furusatokan right. in it. I'd have to... Okay. I hope I have a good... But I think it's Meiji Ishin Furusatokan. Okay. I, I mean, I was... The, the name struck me because uh, I know... I think about five, five to ten years ago, JR, uh, the Japanese Railway Organization, was doing this big tourist campaign about the Furusato. Well, it's done it, it ha I don't know if it did it again. It kind of goes in cycles, right. but you know, they did it earlier on. I mean, it was the biggest thing in like the 1980s, right. and it, even there was some of that in the 70s, but you know, there was like Discover Japan and Rediscover Japan, and then Furusato, you know, My Furusato, My Japan, My Furusato campaigns. That, that, that idea of Furusato is, of course, a very important, and you have, you have one word that is like a, a multivocal symbol. It embraces so many thoughts and feelings for people, and it, it gets translated as your birthplace or the place you grew up, but a lot of times people didn't get born in their Furusato. It represents, you know, where your family is from, so maybe you went there to go visit grandma and grandpa every year for the holidays, such as year-end New Year's coming up. But it represents a sense. It represents a sense of community where people belong, and they felt embedded in valid human relations and the place, and this, the strength of, of being part of a place, uh, more than it was whether you were technically born there or not. And so, um, I'm not sure if it's the official name of the museum, but they do use that phrasing. People refer to it as the Meiji Ishin Furusato Kan, and this idea of it as being, you know, the Furusato of this transition of history. And it seems like they're also capitalizing on the Furusato boom, you could yes, say. Yes, yes, I'm sure a, that that, you know, was part of it, and particularly when they started it, and you can sense it as, as again, a kind of Furusato tourism. People were engaging in Furusato tourism. Also, it's an engagement in tourism that is different than previously when they're doing that, because previously, Furusato was only your own Furusato. You can't just go anywhere and call it you know, I'm going to Furusato, but then according to the tourism campaigns from about the 1980s on, any any Furusato-like place can be experienced as your own mm -hmm. Furusato if you go there for 
tourist purposes and a lot of things that were associated with that. And actually, you know, in a lot of places in Japan, again, places that are becoming depopulated are also, you know, kind of building on that. They are intentionally creating a sense of furusato, you know, tourist, you know, they are, they are packaging their place for tourists interested in reconnecting with a furusato-like place, and it does bring people there, and it helps in many cases, the tourism helps keep many of those places going and alive and lively because there are people coming to them for those reasons. You mentioned the kind of recent boom also for nostalgia for the 1960s. I mean, there was this, uh, the Always TV show. It was this whole family that was set in Tokyo in the 1960s. And the backdrop, of course, was Tokyo Towers being built. In the last two decades in particular, I'd say there, there seems to be, you mentioned the Taiga drama about Sakamoto Ryoma. Uh, now we have this kind of boom for the 1960s. While this isn't necessarily tourism, I mean, what do we make about the resuscitation of these historical time periods now? Well, you know, as somebody going through the journey of life, sometimes it's scary. I mean, when the 1990s become an exploration of, of you know, nostalgia tourism, I'll know I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, when you mentioned the 1960s, I think one of the things, like going to like some of these sites of industrialization and Mindtopia, where actually life was very difficult but when you're there you you have a nostalgia for it almost wishing you had been part of it right was how I even felt and then but I feel like there's also a nostalgia now I mean maybe it's just that as time goes on the 1960s are past tense for more people but I think Japan might be post-affluent you know I mean Japan became very affluent and and it is but it's also got these very strong difficulties and precarity is now a big issue for particularly for youth and the sense of employment and you're not sure where your future is at and the 60s although in many ways very regimented I think can now be seen as a very stable and secure time where people you know at least the belief is that they had jobs they had securities the family structure seems to secure whether people would really want to go back to that, I'm not sure because, you know, again, there's a lot of constraints to that security. But in a contemporary moment where there's a deep, you know, the, the precarity term comes up all the time and people feel like things are precarious, there might be, you know, a draw, a nostalgic draw to that decade, a very strong sense of security. The 1960s are, again, also the decade where people are coming out of the devastation and the the turmoil of the post-World War period. I mean, you know, people are at a potential starvation level in the, the late 1940s and into the 1950s, and then there's the rebuilding, and it's, again, it's just huge work and not necessarily pleasant. And by the 60s, you get a sense of arriving at okayness and normalcy and urban centers becoming more... I've done a lot of work on department stores, and you know the department stores are rebuilding. The sense of people can now engage more; they can't be frivolous, but you can do things that you couldn't do for the past 15, 20 years, and that's kind of beginning. And so there's a stability, there's a sense of well-being, but it's t- and also a deep sense of security that goes with that well-being. Japan has well-being now, but kind of with a sense of insecurity surrounding it or precarity surrounding it. 
The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.